Let me ask you a question and, and just ask you to reflect on this for a few minutes before we actually get rolling in the actual sermon. How are you doing this Christmas season? There's probably a lot of different answers in the room. Uh, my wife and I, we were kind of at the table last night, just pretty tired, pretty exhausted from a lot of things. We're in that season where our kids' ages, we, we had a recital or a concert or some kind of you know, school something every single night this week and you get to the end of the week and you look forward to next week but you're like, oh, I still have these presents to wrap. I've got these things still on my list. You know, my folks are coming in town. We've got to clean the house and got to cook and oh, I'm supposed to bring cookies to the girls, you know, school party on Tuesday, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Jody's carrying all these things. I'm thinking about, I got to preach Sunday. I got to preach again on the 24th and it's go, 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 go. And I'm thinking to myself, the Advent season is here. You know, it, it, was, it was sort of developed over time I'm not talking about the actual birth of Christ, but I'm talking about the season of Advent in the church. It was developed for our spiritual formation. It was developed to help us slow down, to help us reflect, like to help us look back on the coming and then anticipate and look forward. It's designed to shape us. I'm like, how much has it been shaping me? I've been shaped by all this other stuff, and I don't know how to slow down. I mean, it's not stuff that I feel like I can necessarily say no toward. That's a glimpse of how I am. I don't want to assume that you're in the same place some of you are, but I do think it's helpful for you to reflect this morning. How are you doing in Advent? We're almost through it. It's gone by very, very quickly. Well, this morning we are going to get to a text. Uh, if you go ahead and turn there, if you would, Matthew chapter 2. And uh, I'll be reading in a few minutes the first 12 verses. This is one of the most familiar texts in the story of the birth of Jesus. But I actually believe firmly it is the most misunderstood text in the birth of Jesus. This is the account of the Magi, or you know, we call them the wise men, three kings, etc. And I think it's clearly the most misunderstood. And we'll talk about that a little bit this morning. Here's what I'd like you to do as I read this passage. And I'm just going to read it straight through. What I'd like you to do is compare the, the ideas and images in your mind that you have with, you know, the three kings, you know, come in, etc., to actually what's here in the text. Uh, and by the way, there's only one account in the Gospels of the visit of the Magi, and it's right here. So we're literally going to be reading everything that has to do with the visit of the Magi. So if you've got some ideas in your head, if they're not in this scripture text then it's probably conjecture. You know, things that have been developed over time in our imaginations as we sort of picture the scene. So let me actually read here, compare and contrast to your image of what happened uh, at that time, and then we'll talk about it a little bit and then apply it to our lives. So that's where we're going uh, this morning. Matthew 2, verse 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Then or when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, quote, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem 
and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now let's observe a few details of the text. And then I want to talk about what I think the text is actually about and then how that relates to us in Advent 2016. So just a couple observations. Let's start with the question first of when. When did this happen? And this is something that we have in our minds wrong. Now, I'm not going to make a huge big deal of this, but the reality is all of our nativities are incorrect. Our nativities have, you know, Mary, Joseph, baby, you know, on the, the, the manger with the hay and all that. They've got the shepherds and the sheep. And then they've got camels and these, you know, sort of majestic looking king figures presenting the gifts. And according to our nativity sets, it all happened at the same time. That's actually not what the scripture says. Did you notice back in verse 1, after Jesus was born, Magi arrived in Jerusalem. So we know they arrived sometime after the birth. It doesn't say how long after. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But they arrived sometime after the birth, and they didn't arrive at Bethlehem initially. They arrived in Jerusalem. So they weren't there on the night of the birth of Jesus, no matter how kind of that romantic idea stays in our heads. Now, secondly, you notice in verse 11, you get a little bit of a clue of timing here with a couple of words. Verse 11 says, after coming into the house. Now, this is in Bethlehem, but apparently Jesus was no longer in the stable, as it talks about in, in Luke chapter 2. He's now in a house. So this makes sense. Mary and Joseph and their, their new child stayed in Bethlehem for some length of time after the birth. They wouldn't have stayed permanently in that stable. They would have moved into a home, you know, maybe a, a relative, you know, someone that they'd known, a friend of a friend. Remember, Joseph's roots were from Bethlehem. That's where his, his family originated from. So they would have been staying in some kind of home when the Magi arrived. Another little detail, and you wouldn't necessarily pick up on this in English, but in verse 11, it says they saw the child. That's actually a Greek word that doesn't mean infant. Now, in English, we kind of could say child for a baby or child for a toddler. But in Greek, if you want to talk about a baby, an infant, there's a whole different word for that. That's the word that's used in Luke 2 at his birth. This would be a word that would typically be used of a little bit of an older child. Now, don't, don't picture six or seven, probably more like one or two. And we get a clue, one more clue uh, in verse 16. We didn't read this, but you can just uh, jump down with your eyes to verse 16 for a minute. When Herod saw he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Remember, he asked the Magi, when did that star appear? He does the math and realizes, okay, the child's going to be somewhere, you know, less than two, but, but probably more than one. You know, I, uh, all the research I've done says our best guess is probably somewhere between, you know, you know, six to eight months up to close to two years old. That's probably how old Jesus was when the Magi actually 
arrived. All right, so that's kind of the first thing is the when. Now, the, the second question that's important is who? Who were these magi? Well, they're not called kings, by the way. Uh, they're called magi. Now, that, what does that mean? You know, it, it actually is the root that we get magic from later. So uh, these were, in some ways, folks that sort of dealt with some mystical things. But more specific to that, in this time frame, they were experts in the stars. Think of them as part astronomer, part astrologer. Now, back then in this day, uh, astrology sort of wasn't what it is today, of sort of just kind of a, I don't know, a fanciful, crazy, like non-truthful thing. Back then, astrology was considered science. Here's the reason why astrology was considered science. From the ancient worldview of the earth and the sky, their perspective on it was it was one. So you had the land, and of course, you know, they would have envisioned it was flat. They didn't understand the curvature of the earth at this stage. And then you had what they called the firmament. Picture an inverted bowl over top of the land that would touch the land on the sides of the land and then kind of come up over it. And the firmament, according to the ancient belief, held back the waters that were above. And so when you had rain, it was because a window of the firmament was open and the rain would come down. That was their idea. Now the stars, this is an interesting idea, the stars represented things that happened on earth. Because if they're one, you could almost picture that firmament in a way, and the stars above is almost like a reflecting pool of what's happening on earth. So in the ancient mindset, when there was a, something unusual in the sky, it must be a reflection of something important that's happened on earth. And if something important happens on earth, that's going to be reflected somehow in the sky. So these magi would study the sky, study the stars to determine what's about to come or what has just occurred. And they saw something in the stars that made them believe an important Jewish king had been born. Now here's where our understanding of this ends a little bit. The scripture doesn't tell us what was it that they saw and why did they make the connection to a Jewish king. Now we have one clue in Numbers 24, verse 17. You don't have to turn there. This is an interesting prophecy. It's by Balaam. Remember Balaam's the guy with the donkey that starts talking? That whole passage is kind of weird. I'll be honest with you. But in one of the prophecies of Balaam, here's what he says. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Perhaps that was part of the clue, but we still don't understand why they, they said there's something in the sky that means a Jewish king had been born. There's a lot of theories about what this star might have been. Obviously, it could have simply been a supernatural phenomenon that God did that was just sort of extra natural, extraordinary, supernatural. Some folks think it could have been some kind of nova or supernova, which is essentially, I don't, I don't know all the science behind it, but it's a star that's, that's exploding, it's burning bright, so it looks extra bright. Uh, some scholars have said perhaps it was a comet. And they've even traced, okay, what would have been the timing of Halley's Comet? And actually, it's a little bit too early. Halley's Comet uh, would have appeared about 10 or 11 uh, BC. So it was a little bit too early. Here's a very interesting theory. Perhaps it was the conjunction or sort of the joining together of two planets. Now, the reason I have some interest in this theory is back in the ancient day, the planet Jupiter was associated with royalty and the planet Saturn was associated with the Jews. 
Not always, but in some circles. So if Jupiter, the royal planet, and Saturn, the the planet of the Jews, were to kind of come together, perhaps that would lead them to say, oh, king of the Jews must have been born. Interesting theory. Also interesting that scientists have said, you know what, actually, uh, around the time of the turn of the millennium, it happened. Jupiter and Saturn were conjoined three different times around that time. Very, very interesting. Here's the bottom line. Whether it was a natural phenomenon that God used in according to his timing or a supernatural phenomenon, the idea here is that God gave them revelation. Isn't that wonderful? It's interesting, isn't it? And they're Gentiles, right? These magi were probably from, they were somewhere from Persia, the Middle East, Babylon, modern-day Iraq. They would have journeyed a long, long way. Now they meet Herod the Great in Jerusalem. By the way, they don't go immediately to Bethlehem. Why not? Because you wouldn't think to go to Bethlehem if a new Jewish king has been born. You see, the star doesn't actually lead them to the exact location until after they visit Jerusalem. In fact, I think that whatever they saw in the sky was sort of initially a static sign that led them to think, Jewish king, where do you go to find a Jewish king? Jerusalem. That's the only place. It's only after they get to Jerusalem, you know, and then Herod, who's pretty paranoid, which, by the way, fits his you know, historic persona, what we know about him. Uh, he was actually not a legitimate king of the Jews. He was actually an Edomite. That means he was a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. So he had no rightful uh, authority. Rome had given him authority, but he had no biblical authority of the crown. So he's very paranoid. He says, if, if, if a legitimate king has been born, he may want to usurp my power. And so he tricks the Magi and says, you know, go find him and then come back to me so that I may worship him. Right? Tricky, tricky. So they start for Bethlehem, the Magi do. It's only then that the star then is on the move. And, and I actually think, I can't prove this, but, but I think it actually appears again. I think they'd seen it initially, probably at his birth. And I don't think they were following it from Babylon to Jerusalem uh, because it says they saw the star and rejoiced with exceeding great joy when they're on the way to Bethlehem. Now the star's on the move and it settles over the place where the child was. Now this is no doubt supernatural. Right? There, there's no kind of comet or, or conjunction of planets that could possibly do this. The, the closest thing in scripture we have to this is in the Old Testament, the pillar of fire at night that led the people of Israel through the wilderness. Right? That's the closest thing. I think this is just God, no question, supernaturally leading them. And uh, notice their, their response to this. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Verse 10, in Greek, four different words used. It, it says rejoice with joy. That, that's like almost the same word repeated. Rejoice with joy. And then exceeding great. Those two words are almost the same as well. It's like redundant, redundant. <laughs> I think what's happening with this, these magi is they're saying, look, we've been studying the stars all of our lives. It's one thing to see a sign that, that makes us think there's a Jewish king, but now there's something in the sky that's moving and directing us to an exact spot. This is new. This is different. And in my imagination, I think this is probably the moment they think there's something greater here than an earthly king. And their response when they meet Jesus is, is in congruence with that idea. So they find Jesus. Uh, how remarkable that of all the people that meet Jesus in the time around his birth, these Gentiles 
have the most appropriate response. What do they do? We look back, uh, back at the text. This is verse 11. They fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So here's their response. They worship and they give gifts. Now, you probably have heard or read there may be some symbolism with the gifts. You know, gold for royalty. Frankincense uh, is used sometimes in reference to deity, other times in uh, reference to the priesthood. Either one could fit Christ's identity. And then uh, myrrh was used in several different contexts, but most frequently as as an anointing or an embalming uh, when someone died, you know. So there's sort of a, a preview of what to come. I don't think the Magi had all that in mind. God very well may have, but the main idea is these gifts were symbols of wealth and honor, the kinds of gifts you'd give to someone that you want to honor in the highest possible way. So what's the big idea of this whole narrative, this whole story? How could the Spirit use this strange text in many ways that doesn't fit our paradigm necessarily? I mean, there's a star on the move. There are these these, these magicians slash astrologers that God is speaking to. I mean, what does this have to do with us in any way? There's one thing you need to know and two things you need to do. One thing you need to know and two things you need to do. Here's the thing you need to know. The main idea of this passage, God's highest intent and purpose is now and always has been to bring people from all all corners of the earth into joyful knowledge of himself through Christ. God's highest singular purpose is and always has been to gather from the four corners of the earth all the tongues, all the tribes, men and women who would come and worship him and enter into relationship with him and, 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 revealed, and be revealed to knowledge of him through the Son, Jesus Christ. Fascinating that we see this at the very beginning of Jesus' life. Now, theologians call this idea of of God's mission, God's intent, God's purpose, that he's working all the way from the beginning of time to the end of time. They they have a Latin phrase they use for this. It's called the missio dei. It just means the mission of God. And uh, I think it's helpful the way uh, David Bosch, who was a, he passed away some time ago, but he was a missiologist, right? He was a theologian and studied the idea of mission, reaching the ends of the earth. Here's what he wrote about the missio dei. Mission is not primarily an activity of the church, but instead it's an attribute of God. God is a missionary God. You ever thought about God that way? He's a missionary God. To participate in mission is to participate in the movement of God's love toward people since God is a fountain of sending love. That's what's happening in this. God is sort of going into his mission as a fountain of sending love and he's revealing himself to these astrologers from a Gentile nation far away. Very, very interesting. Now, as I've thought about this idea of Missio Dei, I couldn't help but say we need to revisit Genesis chapter uh, 12, verses 1 through 3. You can turn there if you'd like. We'll also have it on the screens. Uh, You may remember as we went through the story of Abraham earlier this year, this was the key text of the entire Abraham narrative. This is 
the calling of Abraham at the very beginning. Now, back then, his name was Abram. God had not yet changed it to Abraham. But this is what God said to this man, Abram, that did not know God before God appeared to him. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country. Interesting, Abram was living somewhere in the Middle East, in Mesopotamia, not terribly far from where the Magi would have come from. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then as you recall years later in Abraham's life when he still doesn't have a son, God says, look up in the sky and see the stars. As many stars as you could see, as if you could even count them, so shall your descendants be. And then fast forward thousands of years, there is a special star in the sky who is a descendant of Abraham that is leading all the nations into Union into uh, um, worship of God through Jesus Christ and joyful worship in this Missio Dei is now being unveiled through the birth of Jesus Christ. You might say it this way, Abraham and the whole nation of Israel was blessed in order to be a blessing. Another way that I've been thinking about it this way was Abraham was both an object of God's love and an instrument of God's love. God particularly blessed him, showed him his love, but so that through Abraham, he could particularly bless and show love to others. He was an object and an instrument. And right here in this visit of the Magi, we sort of see this plan. I think the curtain being pulled back a little bit. Uh, and maybe it's, it's after intermission in God's story and it's a new act that he's starting, but it's intricately connected to the first act in the Old Testament. Now, you are in this story. We are in this story. Where? Where are we? Well, in a sense, we are the Magi. Let, let me explain where I'm going with this. When you boil it all down, if you, who, who were these strange Magi, and by, and by the way, I forgot to mention this earlier. How many of them were there? We actually don't know. We say three kings, which has kind of got it all wrong, right? The only reason we, we think three is because there were three gifts. There might have been two. There might have been 20. We don't know. Just, that's just uh, uh, for free, as Michael would say. That's for free. All right. Now, you, you boil it all down. These magi, however many of them they were, they were Gentiles who received revelation from God that led them to Christ. Is that in anybody's story in here? <laughs> Gentiles, not all of you are Gentiles, most of you, who received revelation from God that led them to Christ. This is us. None of us found Christ on our own. How did you come to Jesus? There was some revelation, and I want to tell you it was through God's word. Now, it might have been through a friend, might have been through a preacher, might have been something you read, might have been something you listened to, but, but somehow... God used his word spoken or written or proclaimed through an instrument of his purposes and that was his revelation to you and you were led to the Christ. Now, you actually have this in common with the Magi. Did you notice that it wasn't actually the star 
that, that initially pointed them to Bethlehem? What pointed their gaze to Bethlehem before they saw the star on the move? Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 was the prophecy that the scribes told them, hey, it's proclaimed he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Only then did they start off for Bethlehem. And then they saw the star on the move to the place. It actually was the word of God that pointed them to Christ. And then the star just finished the job. Uh, so the, the star initially said, you know, in the sky, Jewish king. Then they went to Jerusalem. The text that they learned from these scribes said, go to Bethlehem. They start for Bethlehem. Then the stars on the move leads them to the exact spot of Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, at some point in your life, you receive revelation through God's word about the identity of his son, just as the Magi did. So here's the question. How have you responded? How are you responding now? So if the one thing you need to know is the mission of God is to bring people from all nations, including our nation, into joyful knowledge of himself through Christ. You know, that's the purpose of everything that God does on this earth. You're a part of that mission. You, like Abraham, are both an object of love and an instrument of love. You are both an object or an objective of God's mission. You are also an instrument of God's mission. And until you understand those two things, I'm an object of love. I have a father who loves me, who delights in me because of the son. Not only that, I'm an instrument. This love must flow through me. I must not keep it here. I must let it flow. Until you understand those two things, you're not actually fulfilling the true purpose for which you were created. Here are the two things you need to do. There's one thing you need to know. I think I said a lot more than one thing. I'm not keeping track. Two things you need to do. The same two things the Magi did when they saw Jesus. They worshiped him and they opened their hands. Now let's talk briefly about the worship. Notice they fell on the ground. <laughs> Y'all, there's no other way to worship. There's no other way to worship. And, and I, don't, I don't mean you got to, you know, obviously we worship standing up. We worship sitting down. We worship kneeling. We got these benches up here now. You know, so there's a lot of physical postures. But, but symbolically, there's no other way to worship than falling on your face before the king. This is the posture of worship. Complete submission to authority. Now, we Americans don't like that. Honestly, it's, it's not a part of our culture to submit well to Authority. Yes, we, we don't have a king, right? We're, we're a republic. We're a democracy. We get to vote. We get to have a say in this, right? We don't like submitting to authority in any way, shape, or form. But here's the thing. You can't worship something that you subtly believe yourself to be standing in judgment over. And so some of the ways that I think we subtly posture ourselves above God, above Christ... Keep us from worshiping him. Let me give you just a few examples. Have you ever thought this or, or, or even maybe even prayed this? Or, or maybe you wouldn't pray it out loud, but it's in your heart of hearts. God, surely you can't expect me to obey you in every area of my life. That's unreasonable. Nobody does that for real. How about this one? God, I'm, I'm not actually sure if certain parts of this book are true because they don't seem right. <laughs> 
They don't seem fair. They don't seem, how could that possibly be? How about this one? God, you know, this circumstance that you've brought into my life can't be your loving will for me because it's so painful. What you're doing in all those statements, and by the way, I got a lot of empathy, you know, in various ways for each of those. What you're saying in each of those statements is, I'm, I'm standing above in judgment somehow. You'd never say that out loud, but you're not on your face. You're not sort of just prostrate, you know, in this act of worship. Total submission before your creator and king is the posture you must take if you want to grow into a fully flourishing human being. That's what worship actually is. And if, if somehow, I gotta just add this, you know, even though I, I gotta speed up and I'm gonna slow down for just a second. If somehow this idea of total and complete submission and surrender makes you afraid or, or you have resistance to it in some way, then here's what's true. And, and by the way, this is true of all of us to some degree. Here's what's true. You don't fully yet understand the character of God. And you don't yet fully understand the fact that you're an object of his love, not of his wrath, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. Once you understand that, then you can be free to say, okay, complete total submission because I'm learning to trust. And yes, it is a process of sanctification that happens throughout your whole life. So number one, you must worship him. Number two, give him what you have. This is the idea of being an instrument of God's mission, of God's love, not just being an object of God's love and God's mission. Now, here's what I want to leave you with. We spend a lot of time this time of year trying to think through the perfect gift for every person on our list. You know, Jody and I were doing this just yesterday. Who have we bought for, who have we not bought for? You know, Rob, what would your dad like? You're like, oh man, dads are so hard to buy for. Because <laughs> they don't need anything. <laughs> Right, so what do you do when you're buying for your dad? You're like, well, I don't really think he really needs anything, but I'm going to get him these work gloves, or I'm going to get him this tie, or you know, I'm going to get him a new pair of socks. You know, don't tell him. I think that's what we're actually doing. Anyway, and uh, and then you say, I, I I don't think he really needs it necessarily, but I hope he can use it. All right, here's how it works with God. He doesn't need anything. How do you give a gift to God? He already has it. Like he already owns it. There's nothing you can give to God that he couldn't just say, this is mine anyway. So how do you give a gift to God? Well, I think you sort of approach it like your dad's. Like he doesn't need anything, but I hope he can use this. And then you just offer it, right? You know, think about the gold, the, the frankincense, and the myrrh, right? God didn't need those gifts. But Joseph's family did. This was a poor family. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us what they did with those gifts, but it does tell us that immediately after the visit of the Magi, they had to flee to Egypt. And they had to hide out in Egypt for a, a lengthy period of time until Herod died. Now, how would they have made that journey? And how would they have sustained themselves along the way? And then even in Egypt, I, I've got to think that God used the gifts of the Magi to, to help sustain them, which ultimately kept Jesus alive so that he could proclaim good news to his creation, you see, God always uses your gifts according to his mission. Every gift that you could offer, God will say, I'll take that and I will use it and I'm always gonna use it for the same purpose, the mission of God. My mission to bring people from every place, every tongue, every nation, every tribe into joyful submission and worship and ultimately relationship with me through Jesus Christ.
That's how God uses gifts. That's how he uses your money when you offer it. That's how he uses your time when you offer it. That, that's how he uses your, your, your commitment to love your neighbor, your commitment to stand in the gap in some place of injustice, your, your decision to, to step into a hard relationship where there needs to be some reconciliation and you have the courage to step into that. What will you offer to Jesus this Christmas? I think it's a real question. And I want to ask the question. What are you willing to give him? He doesn't need it, but he'll put it to use. And you get the joy of being a part of his mission on the earth. Now, it's no accident that God led us to this text on this day. I didn't even know it was global offering when I chose this text. But we have an opportunity this morning to literally worship and give, just like the Magi. And don't hear me say that the only giving that, that, that we're talking about here is your money. That's not it at all, right? God wants you more in 2017 than he did in 2016 or, or than you offered in 2016. But part of how you can give and worship is through this global offering. Let me pray for us. And as I pray for us, the, the musicians are going to come back on. And then I want you to see some things on this screen as they play and, and as we sing together. And then I'm going to tell you how you can give. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for first giving to us. God, there's absolutely no way we could be an instrument of your love if we weren't first objects of your love. And for whatever reason... Sometime in our story, a star appeared in our sky and it pointed to Jesus. And through the revelation that you've given us now in your word, you used an instrument of that truth, a parent, a sibling, someone that entered into our lives, a Sunday school teacher, someone in college, some, some point in time. You used someone and you brought us to the truth of Jesus Christ. And now, Father, we acknowledge, I don't want to just receive that love as an object. I want it to flow through me as an instrument. And I pray that even as we give our gifts this morning to the ends of the earth, you will use them. I know you will. To your glory, according to your mission. It's in the great name of Jesus we pray. Amen.